We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're moving on this week. We're, we're finally beyond the topical messages of the past four weeks, and we're back to exposition. Now, it's going to be very important that I, I spend a little bit of time reviewing with you this morning, because we are still talking about a, a topic that we began way back in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. The epistles are epistles. An epistle is a letter. It was a letter that was written from a man, typically an apostle, to a group of people. And when you write a letter, you write it as a whole. And you would expect it, at least in part, to be written, read as a whole. And so context is essential when we're reading the Bible. Don't just open your Bible to an epistle, start in a random chapter in a random verse, read the verse, and then be satisfied. Because there is always going to be context in the epistles as to what that verse is saying. Now you can go to the Proverbs, and sometimes there really is no context to a proverb. It's just a proverb. Sometimes there's a few verses that make up one proverb and that's it. Sometimes there's a little more context. But in the epistles, you really can't do that. We can't just take a verse, take the snippet, pull it out, read it, and say, okay, that's enough. We need to recognize what was being said. And particularly as we're understanding what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, and 7, context is essential. Context is essential. So let me give you some, some, remind you of some of the context of what we have been speaking of. It was way back on October 20th of 2013. Feels like a long time ago now, about five months, four months. When we looked closely at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1, since then we had a topical series in Thanksgiving. We had this topical series on lawful but not expedient. And as we looked in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and following, we sought to understand Paul's warnings against committing fornication. Now, in that particular case, there was a man in the church who had been in a physical relationship with his father's wife, probably his stepmother. Paul's express command to this church was that they needed to cast him out of their fellowship for the purpose that he would repent and that he could then be restored to the church. But as Paul was speaking about fornication, obviously we, we know that from his, his writing that it was wrong, that it was sinful. But he didn't spend any time in 1 Corinthians 5 actually parking on the sin itself. He was more speaking about the man and about church discipline and about the need for the church to stay pure. You recall him saying a little leaven, leaven at the whole lump, and how he was teaching about the necessity of purity in the church. And I told you when we were in 1 Corinthians 1, we preached a message on fornication, and I did indeed um, focus it on fornication in, in, for that first message, but then I told you that we would be coming back to it sometime later, because that's really where Paul focused on it. And that's what we find today in 1 Corinthians six fourteen through 20 Following his time in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 and following, um, in, in those verses speaking about this man in the church who had been a sinner, he then took a little bit of a, of a rabbit trail, you recall, and he talked about um, the going to law with a brother, uh, one with another, and then of course as we talked about the lawful but not expedient, all things are lawful for me but all things are not expedient, and the necessity of doing that which is most beneficial in our lives and that was a natural outcome of his teaching on brother going to law with brother. But now he's back. 
he's back to this concept of fornication. And that's what we're going to address today. In verses 14 through 20, he touches on the essence of physical relationships and how they relate to spiritual relationships that we have with God. And then over the next several weeks after this, as we look in 1 Corinthians 7, I believe there's four messages in 1 Corinthians 7, he will speak of the God-ordained exception to his warning against physical relationships. And the God-ordained exception is marriage. Biblical marriage. And so we'll talk for the next several weeks after this about biblical marriage, about God's expectations for biblical marriage, uh, about the warnings in regard to biblical marriage. And all of that will be coming up in the weeks to come. So stay tuned. As we step into our time today, let's begin by reading verses 13 through 20 of 1 Corinthians 6. Please follow along with me as I read. Paul says, Meats for the belly, and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication before the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord, and will also raise up us by His own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, and make them members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. As we step into our message this morning, let's take a quick moment and I'd like to ask the Lord for help as I preach this message. Father, I do pray this morning as this message is preached that you would give me the words to say. I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide our hearts into proper application. I pray that you would hide me behind uh, the Word of God so that that which is said is that which is found in the Word of God and not simply coming out of my mind or, or my heart, but truly out of, out of your heart and out of your mind as um, seen in your Word. And we pray these things in, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we look at the uh, immediate context of verse 13 and verse 14, we see the direct statement that the body is not designed for physical intimacy, fornication, physical intimacy outside of God's ordained institution of marriage. Rather, he says, the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. So as he's speaking to these believers, he's making it very clear that, that the body is meant for God. And God is meant for the body. We talked about this just briefly in Sunday school this morning. That there is an element of every single man that, that needs God. That longs for God. That longs for worship. That we were created to have a connection with God. When Adam ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil back in Genesis 3, the Bible teaches us that Adam and Eve died. They began to die physically, we understand that, but the scriptures also tell us or, or reveal to us in that context that they died spiritually. The very essence of what it meant for them to be human, to have an intimate relationship with their creator, with God himself, who had created them in his own image, was 
severed on that day. Uh, Well-known mathematician Blaise Pascal once said it this way in his book Pensées, which is the French word meaning thoughts or, or um, um, meditations. He said this, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, made known through Jesus Christ. That's what he said. Perhaps you've heard parts of that sermon or that, that statement before, but it, it is a little bit troubling when the statement ends with there's a God-shaped hole in the heart of every man. Because nowadays, what are people defining God as? The trees are God, or we are God, or everything is God, or, or there, there's essentially God is everywhere. And so that statement ha- can, can actually um, lose its efficacy if we don't give the rest of what Blaise Pascal said. Not just that there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person, but he also said, and it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God. And this is important, made known through Jesus Christ. There is one God, and He is made known through Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ said in John, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by Me. Muhammad will never get anyone to, to God the Father. Buddha will never get anyone to God the Father. We will never get ourselves to God the Father. We must go through Christ. And so God said in verse 13, Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The body was originally designed to be a vessel unto the fulfillment of God's will. And it has just been terribly twisted by the deception of rebellion and the curse of sin. However, if you are a born-again believer in this room today, you have, through the finished work of Jesus Christ, regained that relationship with God that was lost through Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 19 tells us this. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. As by one man, Adam, we fell into sin... We fell out of fellowship with God. We spiritually died so that we could no longer have fellowship with God. The Scriptures tell us by one man, one perfect man, one man who had never sinned, who bore our sin upon himself, we can again be made righteous. And if you're a born-again believer in this room, you have been made righteous. If you're sitting in this room and you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, If you sit and and perhaps everyone thinks you have accepted Christ as your Savior, or perhaps they know you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, but if you are sitting here and you know in your heart, this is something I've never done. This is a decision I've never made. I have never seen the fruit of this in my life. May I encourage you to make the day, today, the day that you accept Christ as your Savior. Scriptures tell us that we are indeed separated from God through sin. And because we are sinners and because we have been separated from God and because God is perfect and His heavens are perfect and He cannot allow imperfection into His eternity, He has made a place. It was not a place designed for mankind. It was a place designed for Satan and his angels called hell. Eventually, hell being cast into a place known as the lake of fire. And He created the lake of fire as a place where death 
and where sin would reside. And because you have fallen, as every man has through Adam to sin, naturally every man and every woman is on the path toward hell. And that's why God sent Jesus Christ. Scriptures tell us that Jesus Christ is God's only begotten Son. God in flesh. He set aside His royalty and His majesty and all of those elements that had defined who He was. And He came to be a man. He humbled Himself. And He lived on this earth for 33 years. And He lived a perfect life. And He did miracles. And He declared Himself to be the Son of God. And at the end of those years, the nation of Israel, His own people, those who He had gone to, beat Him, falsely tried Him before the Romans, and crucified Him on a cross. And He bore that punishment. He bore that shame. He bore that pain. He died on the cross, not for His own sin, because He had never done anything wrong, but He did it for our sin. And the Scriptures tell us that as He hung on that cross, that God had to turn His back to His Son. That there was a separation between God the Father and God the Son for the first time in history as Jesus Christ bore our sin upon Himself. And He paid the debt. And He cried, it is finished. And in doing so, He took upon Himself not just your sin, but your penalty. So that if you will accept Him as your Savior, if you will believe on Him, that's what the Scriptures say, that whosoever believeth on Jesus Christ shall be saved. What does it mean to believe? Well, it's certainly more than just believing that Jesus Christ was a man. Or even that He was God. Or that He lived. To believe is to place your faith in that Gospel. To place your faith that Jesus did in fact live. That He was in fact God. That He did die on the cross. That He did take your punishment upon Himself. And as you accept the gift that He has given to you through belief, the Scriptures promise us, thou shalt be saved. May I encourage you, if you are one sitting in this room today who has never been saved, who has never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, who has never been born again, you can do it right now. As I'm speaking, as I move on in the message, you can talk with God. You can tell Him your need. You can ask Him to save you. You can be saved. Say, I I need a little more information, Pastor. Come see me after the service. I'll sit down and I'll open a Bible. I'll take you to some verses. I'll show you a little bit with more detail how you can know for sure that you are on your way to heaven. For those of you that are believers, this is you. You are the righteous man. That which was lost through Adam has been regained through Christ and regained in you through Christ. Which means, you are not just God's by creation, you are God's by purchase. And that's going to become very important as we continue to walk through 1 Corinthians 6. So, verse 14 tells us that because of the righteousness that the believer has in Christ, we are heirs to His resurrection. Verse 14 says, And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by His own power. Just as He raised Jesus Christ by His power, so too He will raise us up by His power. 
the message is this. If God has the power and the authority over our bodies at the end of the age, when He comes back for His own, and the Scriptures tell us in 1 Thessalonians that the dead in Christ shall rise first, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up, literally raptured together in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. If He had such authority and such power over our bodies to resurrect them at the end of the age, well then, because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, does He not also have power and authority over the believer's body on this earth as well? If you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, if you are indwelled by God through the Holy Spirit, then does not God have natural authority over your body and over your spirit? Does He not have a claim on you? He does. And that's what Paul is, is saying here in verses 13 and 14. Notice with me Romans chapter 6, verse 8 through 12. It'll be a little small, but it'll be on the screen behind me. Paul writes this, Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Again, appealing to the resurrection of Jesus Christ knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over Him. For in that He died, He died unto sin once. But in that He liveth, He liveth unto God. And then Paul says this, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because He's living and because of what you have experienced through Him by grace through faith, likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what baptism is about. That's the sim symbol. When you are baptized, that's symbolically what you're doing. You are, you are doing symbolically what Jesus Christ did physically. He died and He rose again in victory over the grave. When you got saved, the expectation is that you would die to yourself and that you would be raised again a new man. A man no longer controlled by your flesh, but a man controlled by the Spirit of God. A man that is renewed, and a man that has a new master. Whereas you had been led and, and mastered by you and your flesh and sin, now your master is God. You're born again to a new family, to a new master. So, Paul says in Romans 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. That's, that's this part, right? Not our immortal body. In our mortal body. The one that's going to die. Let not sin reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. If you are dead in Christ, and so your spirit is new, you are made a new creation, 2 Corinthians 5.17, let your body follow that spirit into obedience and to newness of life. And this is the exact same concept that Paul is teaching in Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 13, 14, 15, and on through verse 20. And so the idea is this. Sin need not reign in our physical bodies because we have been spiritually freed from its grip. Therefore, we have the privilege to yield ourselves either, by, by virtue of our salvation, either to God or to sin. You choose every day whether you're going to yield to God or you're going to yield to sin whether you're going to yield to the Spirit or you're going to yield to the flesh. We now reserve the right through the power of God's Spirit to choose whom we yield unto. But we also bear the responsibility by virtue of God's grace 
to choose to yield our physical bodies to God rather than to sin. It's a choice that we each make. It's a privilege that we have. And it's the privilege that we have through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. I'm going to take you back to Romans again. Romans chapter 8 verses 11 through 14 says this. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Again, we're talking about the mortal body. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. For if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify or kill the deeds of the body, ye shall live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So again, he's talking about our mortal bodies. And what he's saying here is our spirits have been made new. They have been raised up through Jesus Christ. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We're made new. Our heart is made new. Our mind is made new. Everything has changed on the inside. And then He, through that change, is able to make alive our mortal bodies. So this body, which is really dead in, in its flesh in, and in sin, we're still affected by our flesh, aren't we? We still have the flesh inside us wanting us to sin, pulling us towards sin, trying to get us to sin. Which means there's still a part of us that's dead, our mortal body. Isn't that funny? The, the animate part of us is dead. It really is. It's dead in its trespasses and sins. And yet... Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that as our spirit is alive, so too he can quicken. He can enliven our mortal bodies so that you, through your physical bodies, can do that which is pleasing to God. The unbeliever can't. The unbeliever's body, I mean, he's dead in his works. Regardless of what he's doing, it's dead. It's in the flesh. So that, as Paul would continue to say in Romans chapter 8, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you can. Because just as He quickened your spirit, He can quicken your body. He can make it alive. He can bring about the righteousness of God through you. And this is the appeal that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 6. It's not all the teaching. All the teaching is found in Romans. But he's appealing to that teaching in 1 Corinthians. As... as for the reason by which we abstain from fornication. The reason that we would abstain from physical intimacy outside of the God-ordained institution of marriage. And so Paul states in verse 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? God forbid. When you entered into the covenant relationship with Christ by grace, when you were saved, when you were born again, you were joined with Christ, connected to Christ, so that the church is even likened in Scripture to His bride, a part of His bride. The only time we actually see the term bride of Christ in Scripture is in Revelation, and it's speaking of the, the new Jerusalem. However, the church is likened to the bride of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5, and it is certainly a part of the bride of Christ as we see at the end of the millennium. And so Paul asks this question as I just read in verse 15. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of an harlot? And he says, God forbid. Should I take the members of my body, which 
These members are reckoned by God to be joined to Christ and join this same body which is joined to Christ physically to a man or a woman outside of marriage in fornication. Should I do that, he says? Should I take that which Christ owns by right and by purchase and give it to someone who has no right, no claim, and no authority over my body? And his answer is, God forbid. The King James translators use God forbid here. It's not a direct translation of that phrase. The phrase in the Greek is meganoita. And it literally means may it never be. May it never be. It is the most emphatic phrase in the Greek language. Which is why the King James translators used God forbid. Because back in the 1600s, that was the most emphatic way you could you could say that you didn't want something to happen. God forbid that something should happen. It's still a pretty emphatic phrase today. God forbid that that should happen. And so that's why they use that phrase. It literally, though, translated, may it never be, may it never happen, may, may it never come into your mind, may it never even exist, may it never be that you would take your body, which has been joined to Christ, and join it to a harlot. Join it to one that has no authority, no claim, and no right to your body. Now, lest we fail to understand the complexities of this warning, Paul reiterates the truth that forms the foundation for his claims in verses 16 and 17. He says what? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Now Paul teaches that when we enter into a physical relationship with a person, we join ourselves to them. As biblical proof of this point, Paul appeals to Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, where God states concerning Adam and Eve, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Now, Jesus Christ teaches this same concept. He appeals to this concept when he's speaking concerning divorce in Matthew chapter 19. They ask Jesus if it is lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason, to which Jesus replies in Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, this. Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife? And they twain, that means two, shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, or two, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. So when two people come together in a physical union, they join themselves into one flesh. Now, this is where things can get a little bit confusing. And this question has come up before and I finally get to answer it. Does that mean that anytime you have a physical union with a person, you are married to them? No, it does not. And this is why. The only thing that is regarded as valid by God is when a physical union is accompanied by personal vows of faithfulness, which we today call marriage vows. It is not the physical union that God regards as marriage. He sees that as a union, but He sees that as a temporary union. The Permanent union is regarded through the 
vows of faithfulness and commitment one to another. And you say, Pastor, how do we know this? Well, really, we recognize this because of, of what Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because we see here the difference that he paints between becoming a member with a harlot and then having a wife. And so, whereas in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, and in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, we see the connection between two being one flesh and them being joined together in marriage, what we understand is that it is the leaving and cleaving that defines the marriage, not the two becoming one flesh. The two becoming one flesh is something that is ordained to be allowable in the marriage relationship. It does not define the marriage relationship. Does that make sense? When two people come together in physical union, that does not define the marriage relationship. It's something that is only allowable within the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship is defined according to Genesis 2, verse 24, and Matthew 19, verses 4 through 6, as when you leave your father and your mother and you cleave unto your wife. In other words, you are cutting authority ties and you are forming a family group that is dedicated, that, is, is, that vows to be faithful one to another for life. One man, one woman for life. That is marriage, not a sexual relationship with another person. So do the vows matter? They absolutely matter. Because that is the commitment that monogamous... <laughs> Let's try that word again. The monogamous commitment between one man and another man and another woman for life. That is marriage in the eyes of God. The vow of faithfulness. Now, this joining that Paul is speaking of here, the joining between a man and a harlot will not be one accompanied by vows of faithfulness. This is what fornication implies. This is a joining together without any faithfulness. As a matter of fact, implicitly, it is with the expectation of unfaithfulness. That there is no long-term expectation of, of obligation or responsibility that accompanies this. There is only a short-term obligation of irresponsibility and wickedness. And so within this framework... There is great sin in the eyes of God. Now, this sin is further magnified in the life of a believer. It's, it's of course, the, even the, the secular world recognizes fornication to be something that's wrong, although that is falling out of our culture. However, in a believing realm, this is worse than, than you could otherwise imagine. And the reason being, because you are also connected to Christ. Not just spiritually, but Physically, according to 1 Corinthians 6, you are physically connected to Christ. In other words, your body. Your body is as much Christ as your spirit is Christ's. And so that's why Paul says here, Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? And then he says, um, But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. He says, We're taking our members of Christ and we're giving them to an harlot. At the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit dwells believers. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 tells us this. In whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, 
which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. The link between salvation and spirit indwelling is absolutely inseparable. A person is not saved if they do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. And a person cannot have the indwelling Holy Spirit of God if he is not saved. There's a concept out there found typically in charismatic movements called a second blessing. They believe that salvation and the Holy Spirit coming upon a man are two separate events. Now we do see such um, demonstrations or such examples in the book of Acts where a man believes and then at a point in the future he receives the Holy Spirit. But we also understand that the book of Acts is a very unique time in history. It's a transitional period between that which was in the Old Covenant and that which is in the New Covenant. It's a time where there are sign, sign gifts and signs and wonders in order to validate the, the changing of one dispensation to another. We do not see that example, the example of the Holy Spirit coming upon people after salvation, the example of sign gifts. We do not see that example carry on through the early church. And so we understand that this was a temporary thing to validate the ministry of God. And you say, well, um, Pastor, you're, you're kind of being generalized. Well, we're not teaching through Acts right now. So I can't get into it all today. That's not where we are. But if you're curious, if you're confused, if you want to know more, by all means, come see me and I can give you that information or, or point you to someone who can give you that information. So, typically speaking, as we understand the Scriptures, as we understand the body of Scriptures, we see that the Holy Spirit of God is the seal of our salvation. That it is that, that element that seals us in Christ, that gives us the assurance of our salvation, that indicates to us that we are indeed believers. And so outside of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, what do we have? We don't. Salvation and Holy Spirit indwelling are one event. And so 1 John 4.13 would tell us this, Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. Here John appeals to the very fact that we have His Spirit to prove that we are believers. He can have such confidence because every believer is indwelled with the Holy Spirit at salvation. It's the very basis of the confidence that we have that we are a believer. And then, of course, that confidence is manifest in our hearts as we bear the fruit of the Spirit. And so we know that we're saved because we have His Spirit and, we, and therefore we are indwelled and therefore we are sealed. And that's the earnest of the inheritance that is to come. And then the confidence grows in our hearts as we live in the Spirit rather than manifesting the flesh. And as we live in the Spirit, we bear the fruit of the Spirit and that gives us the confidence that we are in Him. So Galatians 5.22 tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. We've memorized it. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law, Paul says. And so as we see these elements of the fruit of the Spirit bearing themselves out in our lives, that tells us that we have the indwelling Holy Spirit and that gives us confidence to know that we're a believer and that we are walking in the Spirit because we're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. So we see from the testimony of Scriptures that the Spirit indwells each believer at the moment of salvation and begins over the course of time to mature us, to grow us, and to conform us to the image of Christ. 
at that moment of salvation, the Scriptures tell us that that person is literally joined to the Lord so that his spirit is inseparable from God's spirit. You can't give it away. You can't give it back. You can't lose it. We would say, typically, in, in circles such as ours, once saved, always saved. You can't lose it, and you can't give it back. This transition is pictured in God's institution of marriage. That marriage is meant to be a physical testimony of the relationship between God and each believer in His church. And this is why God speaks against divorce so strongly. Because you are marring the picture of Christ and His church when you are severing a relationship that was meant for life, just as Christ and His church are meant for life. Jesus said it this way in John 10, 27-29. Please turn there with me. John 10, 27. I'll have you turn and read these, pay, these words with me. If you want verses that assure you of your salvation other than the reality of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, these verses are pretty compelling. Jesus Christ says in verse 27, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of My hand. My Father which gave them Me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of My Father's hand. He says, I and My Father are one. Now, if if you have a King James Bible, you'll notice, and I don't know about the other translations, maybe some of them as well, you will notice that the word man in verse 28 and in verse 29 is in italics. When you see italics in the Bible, what that is telling you is that that is a word that is supplied by the translator. It is not actually in the original Greek manuscript. It is supplied by the translator for clarification purposes. And it's not necessarily a wrong thing that they would do that. Oftentimes the Greek, when when we're translating from Greek to English, we need to have some filler words to help us understand what's going on in the text. Now the Greek word that is in this passage is actually, that's used to translate the word no man, is literally or in reality indefinite. It could be translated no man as we see in the text. It could be translated no one as some Bibles do. Some Bibles don't say no man can pluck him out of my hand. Some Bibles say no one can pluck, can pluck um, you out of my father's hand. It could also be translated no thing or nothing. It could be neutral. Nothing can pluck you out of my father's hand. It's not necessarily just speaking of another man being able to pluck you out of God's hand. It could reference anything or everything. Jesus Christ literally saying, nothing is able to pluck you out of my Father's hand. Not just no man, not just no woman, nothing is able to pluck you out of my Father's hand. In other words, when we got saved, it's not like this. When when my daughters and I are going shopping, I'll say, take my hand. And when... My daughter puts her hand up. I don't just let her grab onto me. That's a recipe for disaster, right? You just let your your daughter hold your hand. Well, then, as soon as she finds something more interesting than your hand, she goes, blink, and she's gone. No. I put my hand down. She puts her hand up, and I grab her hand. 
I am as much holding her as she is holding me. So that when she decides she doesn't want to hold daddy anymore, it really doesn't matter because daddy's holding her. That's what Jesus Christ is saying in John 10. You are not just holding on to God. God is holding on to you. You are placed into His hand. So it really doesn't matter. It does matter uh, spiritually, but as far as salvation concerns, it doesn't really matter if you decide one day you want to let go of Him because He's not letting go of you. What a blessing that we have a Father that's not just telling us, hold my hand. We have a Father who says, I'm holding your hand. You can let go all you want. I'm not letting go of you. That's what he says in John chapter 10. That's what we see in the Holy Spirit's, uh, the, the teaching of the Holy Spirit and His indwelling. And so we understand that we are God's and God is ours. Let's turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. What does all this mean? Why did I take this little Holy Spirit tangent? Well, I did so on purpose. What it means is that at the moment of salvation, you and God are joined. You are joined spiritually, but you have also joined physically in that you ha- your body has become Christ's. He owns you. So when we join ourselves with another in union, just like, just like in marriage, when my wife and I said, I do, we were not just committing ourselves theoretically or spiritually or, or, or emotionally to one another. We were committing ourselves physically to one another. I mean, I didn't start taking pieces of her body and pasting it on me or anything of that sort. But her body is as much mine as it is hers. My body is as much hers as it is mine. We are each other's. And that is the picture of Christ. That we are members of Christ physically as much as we are connected to Him spiritually by virtue of the Holy Spirit's indwelling. So when we join ourselves with another, a, a, another human in union apart from the only way God has said this is okay, that's the institution of marriage, as sealed by the mutual vows of lifelong faithfulness and love, we are taking the members which belong to God and willingly prostituting them to another. That's what the Bible is teaching here. But how big of a deal is this really? After all, this is the 21st century, right? We're modern folk here. How big of a deal is this really? Verse 18, Paul paints a contrast here between other sins and the sin of fornication. Now, we know that all sin is wrong. There's no real ranking of sins to where we can say, well, this sin is much more egregious than this sin. Sin is sin. But it's also true that certain sins have far worse physical and spiritual consequences than others. So while coveting is just as wicked in the eyes of God as murder, it's still sin, the physical and spiritual consequences of murder will indeed surpass the physical and spiritual consequences of coveting. So Paul says here that every sin which a man commits is apart from his body. You use your body to commit the sin, but the sin is external in nature. A lie is a sin against the truth. Generally a sin against the person that you're lying to. Covetousness is a sin against contentment and generally a sin against the one who you're coveting or the thing that you're coveting. Murder is a sin against another person where you are taking their life. Stealing is a sin against another's possessions or against the person that owns those possessions. Fornication, however, 
is a sin against your own body. And at salvation, this body is covenanted unto the Lord. So Paul says at the beginning of verse 18, flee fornication. Run from this sin. If fornication and the world is going this way, then you ought to be going this way. The exact opposite direction of the temptation or the desire or the enablement to have physical relationships with a person outside of the God-given union of marriage. Adultery, incest, pornography, prostitution, sexual activity outside of the marriage relationship. These sins are sins directly against your own body. And according to verse 19, these sins are therefore a direct sin against the one who indwells your body. And who's that? It's the Holy Spirit of God. So you are sinning against the Holy Spirit of God when you are fornicating. You are sinning against your own body. And so verse 19, he says, Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior by believing on His name, and therefore you are a born-again Christian, your body is not your own. You do not have the right to do what you want with your own body. You do not have the right to give it over to abuse or to addictions or to fornications, to give it to people, to, to, to yield the authority and the rights and the privileges of your body to someone else. You don't have that right. You don't. You say, well, that's not fair. Oh, sure is. Jesus Christ purchased your body with a great price. He owns it and then some. He's worthy of your body as much as He's worthy of your spirit. So ladies, we talked a couple weeks ago about appearance. When you are flaunting your body before the world, and by God's grace, no one in here is doing that. But when a young lady, particularly a believer, flaunts her body before the world, she is giving something to those men that are lusting after her that she has no right to give to them. That right is reserved for God, and for her husband, by God's grace, who has allowed the institution of marriage. You have no right to give it over to anyone else. Similar thing could be said for just about every lawful but not expedient thing we, we used last week. Amusements, appearance, substances, music. These are all things that we are placing into our body. And we have no right to take from God that which is His and to give it to another or to use it from, apart from God's purposes. We have no right. It's God's. It's His. He bought it. He owns it. Just as in a marriage relationship, you willingly yield yourself to your spouse so that you're no longer just your own. But you too now have a claim upon one another that no other human being has. So too, when you enter into salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you willingly yield yourself to God so that you are no longer just your own. But God has a claim upon your body, your soul, and your spirit. You're God's. And we know this because the Holy Spirit indwells us. You are the Spirit's temple. Literally, you're the Spirit's dwelling place. He dwells inside of you. 
as we apply this truth this morning. We're going to first apply through verse 20 because he applies it for us. And then we'll talk about those points briefly. Verse 20 says this, For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. If you are a born-again believer in this room, you have been bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And that puts you on shouting ground. To put it in the way that my old uh, southern preachers used to say, that puts you on shouting ground. It really does. Praise the Lord. You are bought. You are paid for. You are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work for it. You don't even have to maintain it. It's yours. But it does come with some responsibility. The gift came without stipulation. It came without obligation. The very essence of grace demands that the gift have no conditions upon it. But the realities of grace do not imply that we ought not feel a deep, genuine obligation to the one who purchased us. To the one who gave us the gift. Furthermore, the realities of grace do not imply that we have not, by accepting this gift, incurred any responsibilities because of our choice to believe on Him. You are here for a reason. The whole reason why you have been saved and were left upon this earth is that you would glorify God in your body and your spirit. We talked about it a little bit yesterday, did we not? Those that were at the the sledding day. That it's expected of us, and we'll, we'll get there in a minute, that everything we do would be to the glory of God, whether we're eating or drinking or whatsoever we do. Is this not natural? Is this not an understandable extension of what Jesus Christ has done for us? We're here to live a life that is rightly related to God so that everyone around us can learn how to be rightly related to God. What you do does matter. And what you do, as we talked about even in Sunday school, could mean the difference between someone's decision to accept or to reject Christ. So three points as we close. Number one, as a believer, your body is God's, not your own. All the verses that we've looked at today have made this abundantly clear. Believers rest in the comfort that they will one day be resurrected by the power of God and spend eternity with Him. But the essence of God's resurrecting power in our lives is not simply a future prospect. It's not just about that which we have coming to us one day. It's about what we are today. It's about what He's made us today. It's about what He's empowered us to do today and that's to live in His Spirit and to live righteously before Him. He's already staked the claim upon your your body. He's already staked the claim upon your spirit. He's already put in His flag. He already owns you and one day He will redeem that body unto Himself in your resurrected body, that body of perfection. But He still holds the rights to it today. Second application. Outside of marriage, physical intimacy is absolutely sinful. If God has authority over your body and spirit, then He is the one that gets to make the rules, folks. Society and culture don't make the rules. Our government does not make the rules on this. God makes the rules. And the rule that God has made in relation to your body is that the only area or the only venue in which Physical intimacy is allowable is within the covenant relationship of marriage. It's not allowable when you have good intentions of marriage. It's not allowable if you think this might be the one someday. It's not allowable in any other context, but when you have vowed to that person to live with them forever, to serve and to love them forever, 
that is what God's Word says. And He makes the rules. Anything outside of that is an offense to God's nature. And it's a sin against your own body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Marriage is sealed by vows. Vows of faithfulness and lifelong intent. If two people have not made vows of faithfulness and they do not have lifelong intent, they are not married before God. They might be married in the eyes of the law, but the government doesn't make the rules. God makes the rules. Now as Christians, we should have no part in physical relationships outside of marriage ever. And of course, ladies, I already applied it a bit broader still. You shouldn't be putting yourself out there for men. That's not for their eyes. That's for your husband's eyes. Only. And that's the essence of our teaching and our beliefs on biblical modesty. Third and finally, your body is meant to serve God, not yourself. God owns you body and spirit. God has specific expectations upon you and your body. What's the essence of those expectations? To glorify God. That is it. If you wanted to boil everything that God has saved you from to a reason, it is this, that you in your body and in your spirit would glorify God. You're not here just to have fun. You're not here just to do what you want. You're not here to be your own person, to find self-love and personal fulfillment. It's not what this life is about. You're here for God's glory. And this brings some important questions which we'll close with this morning. You are God's if you're a born-again believer in this room. I've already talked to those who may not be a believer and I've encouraged you in that regard. May the Holy Spirit do the rest of the work there. Believers, how much of your life are you living for God's glory? We talked about 1 Corinthians 10.31 yesterday. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. The implication of that verse is that you can live 100% of your life for God's glory. Are you? God has given you a free will. He's bought you, and by His grace you have eternal life that you cannot lose. However, though this gift claims authority over your body and spirit, God has still given you the choice as to who you will serve, Himself or your flesh. So how much of your life have you chosen to yield to God? How much of your life are you yielding to things that don't glorify God? How much time are you spending on things that don't glorify God? The question comes down to this. It's a question I like to ponder when I'm in the shower sometimes. What am I doing with my life? Have you ever pondered that while you're in the shower? That warm water's hitting you and you're like, yeah, that feels good. Now what am I doing with my life? What are you doing with your life? That's the question. What are you doing with your life? Will the actions that you did last week or will the actions that you intend to do this week, will they receive a well done, now good and faithful servant when you get to heaven? Will the coming week of your life be a week that you will look upon and say, and and God will look upon and say, that was a good week for me? Or will this week be another wash? Will it be another waste? Will you look back at the end of this week and say, you know what, God, there's another week gone by and I did nothing for you and I didn't glorify you and I did this and this and this that, that, that were 
opposed to you maybe next week? That's the question. And so as we close, may I encourage you to take these thoughts to heart. The message was, in a manner of speaking, about fornication, but it went much broader than that, did it not? I don't know if there's anyone in this room that would would not be able to apply the reality of God owning us to their lives today and this week. As you make each decision, as you think about your week, let this next week and the week after that and the week after that be a week where you look back upon that week and say, yes, God, that was your week. It was a week where my body and my spirit was dedicated to the things of you for your glory and for your honor because I'm a purchased possession and you're worthy. Let's pray together.